Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects for the Space with the assistance of Rob Fain. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Thanks very much. So yes, thanks for joining us all in person after so long that we've been separated. It's been wonderful to gather you here today on a rainy, grey evening and talk about something cheery like death. <laughs> so you've really taken a punt of coming to us. I mean, I think it's interesting that we're talking about this today because architects seem to get a really bad press. Um, and I think actually one of the things that we've been talking about a lot is that maybe you don't get bad enough press. Like for everything that's been doing, it's kind of, we're kind of distracted by a lot of these minor misdemeanors, whether they be perpetrated by kind of lowly architects or even outgoing presidents of the RIBA. Um, that this is more of a distraction about things that we really should be doing something about. Um, and we're complicit in a lot of the things that are going on in the construction industry. Um, and we have a position that we can use for powers of good rather than evil. But actually what we do is spend a lot of our time being critical about aesthetics rather than being critical about mortality issues related to construction. Um, and so just to kind of like test the room because it's interesting to see who's come to something like this build in this respect, um, who is actually in practice in the room in architectural construction, something like that, okay. And who would say they're in an ethical practice? <laughs> yeah, okay, that, that's, I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> because as architects, we have a very kind of uh, specific definition of what ethical is. And I think we all do say that we try and work in ethical ways. But with our invited panel here this evening, I think this kind of throws open quite a lot of questions about what it is to be ethical and about how we need to raise our awareness and talk about a lot of things that we don't already talk about. And I think in that respect, Ariana, if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to come to you first, because you've been doing some fascinating research into what we don't get to talk about because we don't seem to have the language to talk about it. And that ethics in particular seems to be something which is a very thorny topic in that respect. That's true. Hi, everybody. I'm Ariana. Um, you're right that ethics is tricky and that we don't talk about it enough. So I'm a, this poster gave me a PhD already, but I don't actually have a PhD yet. Um, She's that ethical. Yeah. <laughs> it was an unintentional lie. Um, so I'm, my PhD, which I'll be submitting in December, is about, um, okay, I need to go back for a second. It's at UCL, um, and it's in development planning, which is almost anything. Um, so what I'm, what I'm interested in is what fear looks like in contexts of extreme violence, particularly in extremely and chronically violent cities. Uh, I've been working on violence my whole career, um, and I, I've been 
but I'm more interested in kind of the perception of things. Uh, I did my field work in San Salvador, um, which is where I lived before I moved to London. Um, and when I got there and I started asking people questions about fear, they literally couldn't respond to me in any meaningful way. People talked in circles, they contradicted themselves. Sometimes, I, you know, they'd say something and I'd point out, you said literally the opposite thing three minutes ago. And they'd say, no, I didn't. And I'd be like, okay, <laughs> that's, that's false, but okay. Um, or they'd get defensive or they'd get sad or they'd say, you know, yes, both of these things are true. So I realized that the methods that I was using to, to try to engage with these topics were like fully inadequate. They weren't working at all. Um, and yet, you know, as a researcher, what I would look to first is literature. And there was very little literature that was like, this shit doesn't work. Um, you know, I'm, you're taking methods classes and they teach you about interviews and they tell you that ethics is straightforward and you just have to go through an application process and all of that is total bullshit. Um, it's not straightforward. It's very complicated. And I think especially when you're in, you know, environment, you know, I study violence in a place that has a lot of violence. So I knew what I was getting into. This is part of the job description, I guess. But this kind of stuff happens in lots of places where you don't expect it even. Um, especially as the world is sort of wrought by more and more uh, conflict, you know, related to the climate crisis, related to all sorts of different things, this is going to become more and more normal that you will encounter difficult things, sensitive topics, when you don't necessarily expect to encounter those things. And the more that we don't speak about all of those things, the more problematic and less prepared we'll be, the more we as practitioners, as researchers, whatever we're doing, will be sort of negatively affected by that and the less well we'll be able to practice. So I'll throw it back to you. <laughs> um, but I think this kind of distance that we've got between what we're doing as architects and what they kind of like on the ground experience is, is uh, a kind of distinct separation, which we're very comfortable with maintaining. We might like to say that we were involved in um, a lot of the kind of concerns and considerations of the construction of our projects. And obviously with things like CDM, it's a, like a legal responsibility of architects to be able to take these things on. But I mean, from the work that you guys have been speaking about this evening, especially when we're working overseas and beyond the limits of the UK, we're working outside UK legislation. And there seems to be a very kind of like hands-off uh, approach to taking the responsibility for that. And I suppose, Isabel, if I could loop you in at this point, because I know you've been doing a lot of work on uh, like construction projects, particularly in the Gulf. And around... I suppose that kind of touches upon things like the famous ZHA state football stadium that's been built for the World Cup um, and the kind of ethical considerations that were thrown up around that. And that um, I think it was in Dazeem that um, they interviewed Zaha at the time when she was alive and we're talking about, you know, like, why aren't you taking responsibility for this? And it's like, well, you know, if there's a problem on the ground, then that's for that to be dealt with in that context. That's not on me as an architect. We do what we can, but we have a limit of responsibility. Um, so where, where do you think the limit of the responsibility lies with the architects? And what is the experience on the ground that kind of counterpoints that? Well, <laughs> so for us, we, you know, we, we, we don't talk about the limits of um, responsibility. And uh, I think there's this um, sort of idea that, um, you know, companies operating overseas, don't have that responsibility 
because they're at a distance um, physically and, and legally. And for that, we, uh, you know, at the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre, we turn to the UN's guiding principles on business and human rights. Um, they kind of get trotted out as this in sort of lieu of any international standards, international um, treaties, because we don't have one that governs kind of business operations overseas. But they're, they're very simple, and they, they state that any, any for-profit um, organisation, so any, any, any business, not just um, but SMEs as well, have responsibility for their, um, the impacts of their operations, not just on direct employees, so employees in the UK uh, or overseas, but also um, the impacts on communities where, where, they're, where they're working, the uh, impacts on workers um, throughout, you know, long, complex global supply chains, the other side of the world. Um, and that responsibility, um, it, it, it's a fact. That's our starting point, and that's um, the, the kind of standing point that we seek to engage companies on. And so the, the sort of suggestion that, um, you know, responsibility from, from an architect standpoint would stop um, when, kind of, you know, contracts are, are drawn up and designs are produced um, is, is definitely not, not far enough. And actually, I was really excited that this event is being held, that there's this group that wants to look at architecture's role, because we mostly you know, um, have been looking at sort of the multinational construction companies, their employment practices at the actual stage of building these projects, the stadiums, the World Cup um, next year, um, in particular, have kind of been probably most prominently in, in the media, but actually that sort of responsibility of, of businesses for the human rights impacts that they can have very much goes from, you know, the, the start to the finish of, of kind of a life cycle of, of construction. So from the very kind of conception point of a project to the throughout that development process, the design process, um, uh, throughout to kind of the, if, if it happens, the sort of demolition and repurposing of a, of a project. So there are no limits in, in that sense. And I think you know, I um, work specifically on um, migrants' workers' rights in the Gulf. Um, and I think the the situation for migrant workers in the Gulf specifically, but also in Qatar has been particularly in the kind of limelight because of the World Cup next year um, is absolutely horrendous. It's, you know, unique in a sense in the kind of lack of rights protections for workers. Um, you know, strangely, to kind of contradict myself on paper, uh, certainly in Qatar, but also in, you know, some of the other Gulf countries, there are actually areas of workers' rights which are very strong on paper. Um, they are systematically not upheld, not um, considered uh, important. The lives of workers working on these huge construction projects are not considered significant. We talked earlier um, about the sort of normalization of, of you know, Ariane's spoken about her, her project and the, the kind of that, that, that fact that the violence becomes so normalized that it's no longer, um, you know, a topic to be spoken about. And that very much related with me in terms of speaking about um, the fact that in you know Nepal, which derives 30% of its GDP from from 
income from its overseas workers, many of whom are in the Gulf, um, has a whole setup at Kathmandu Airport for repatriating bodies of workers who have died overseas. Um, now, they have not necessarily died working on the Khalifa Stadium, or whatever it might be, but they undoubtedly are exposed to hugely exploitative working conditions, um, very poor treatment, and it has become a, a regular feature at Kathmandu Airport, these coffins arriving uh, weekly. And that's not an exaggeration, but it has become normal. The other thing that I think, um, considering kind of migrant workers specifically in the Gulf, but this is true of other industries, not just construction uh, and other regions, is that the kind of reason that these workers' lives are not given the prominence which I think many activists think they should be, uh, is race. It's the vast, vast majority of workers building stadiums, building the infrastructure that will be um, used to host fans, sponsors, players for the World Cup um, are from Asia and Africa, um, majority East Africa and South Asia. Um, there are 30 million workers across the Gulf, Gulf-wide, um, and almost 2 million in Qatar. And that, for me, is, is why they're not given that, um, that attention. And I think to speak about migrant workers without mentioning that would be totally promise. Some of the really prominent, um, you know, talking about death by design, deaths of a worker on a stadium being built for the World Cup was a white British man. Um, and I think he was probably one of the top three uh, names that gets sort of trotted out as someone who has died building these stadiums. Um, one in three workers on the World Cup stadiums is not a white British man, um, just to clarify. But that's, um, you know, a huge factor in, I think, why this normalisation has sort of been allowed to happen. And, I mean, it's one of these things that... Um, we don't have a don't seem to be able to have a platform to talk about it because as architects you don't want to foreground things like that i suppose in a way and that especially because of the commercial links that you have and the link to the clients there's a sensitivity about being able to talk things but david you very bravely not only taken the jump to go and work in these quite um like uh intricately conflicted contexts but also being able to get to a position where you can reflect on that and speak about your experiences previously i mean would you like to fill us in a little bit about how you got there in the first place and what those experiences were yeah um you know, it's a little bit kind of ambivalent um because of uh, so basically in, in 2012 the week after the olympics um i uh, went to work in saudi arabia i just come to the end of a a relationship and I wanted to get away and somebody offered me this job in this really bizarre kind of weird place so kind of I just you know, wanted to go somewhere really really strange and exotic and in the spirit of adventure um, and I went there to kind of see what it was like on the ground and to kind of interact with people and I suppose what I learned from that was that there was a um, kind of civil society beneath some of the forces, the economic forces, the kind of um, uh, kind of power structures that um, we all understand, um, that has a completely different comprehension of how things work. That's um, quite often full of other 
people is really interested in the, the term migrant workers. Um, so I was a migrant worker. Um, interestingly, the other things that people have called out there, economic migrants, I was an economic migrant. Every British person uh, I knew, every Western person I knew out there was an economic migrant. Um, so it, it's kind of part of the language of how you kind of um, delineate things. But all I could really do was deal with people in, in the kind of immediate, compassionate way that was possible as a person to person with who had a kind of liberal Western education. Expand that and, and share that. There's a person in my family who's very close to me who's gay. I was able to kind of, I would have conversations with people who would casually be homophobic and I would be able to kind of question them about that and throw that out and talk about that. And nobody had ever um, spoken about it. I don't drive, so I took taxis everywhere and everybody wanted to have a chat and everybody wanted to kind of discuss things. So I got to know people from a kind of personalized point of view. However, there was a very, all the things you described are really kind of clear and marked. By the way, also, I worked for a Saudi company out there who are executive architects for people like Foster's, Zaha Hadid, all these other architects in a big financial district. Um, it was quite a um, enlightened practice in that there were women working for them, but there was a women's department. So it was kind of a distinct way because of the, the legal laws. And, and what you were saying, there are quite strong in theory, labor laws in Saudi Arabia, but trying to enforce those are really, really, really difficult if you have no power, if you've got um, nobody supporting you. So in terms of a kind of um, civil society, what I came to learn was where the forces, the kind of the pull forces rather than the push forces that made people come there and where people had no choice. So as, as you said, uh, Nepal, I think Philippines is, um, uh, biggest kind of form of income for their economy is uh, is kind of remittances. Uh, Jordan exports people, educated people, to do administrative tasks. A lot they don't have any natural resources, so there are a bunch of kind of forces that mean that people end up in these places, and there is a kind of complicity not just at at the personal level or at the corporate level, but also a kind of governmental level. And an example of that, a very good friend of mine. Um, who I speak to regularly every week, who still lives in Saudi Arabia, could was only ever able to kind of grow up in Saudi Arabia. She's been trying to leave Saudi Arabia for many years because she's got a Syrian passport. I mean, and if you have a Syrian passport, you can get deported from Dubai. Dubai won't let you in if you've got a Syrian passport. So she can't, she, she, she got a um, place to do a master's degree in Glasgow. She wasn't let into the country. She got another course in the state. She wasn't let into the country. And the, what I mean by that is that that creates a kind of um, a pool of people who want to be as mobile as all the other people with better education, better passport, who happen to be born, born in the right place. My parents were economic migrants into this country, so literally an accident of birth. I go back and I'm having these kind of um, relationships with other people. But those people wouldn't necessarily be forced to do that if they could get into other places that were less kind of pernicious in that way. So there's, there's a bunch of kind of pull and push processes which are structural and mean that people end up in those places. Yeah, exactly. And again, it comes down to kind of like the language and the framing and the perspective that is inherent within those words that are used about, you know, whether you're considered a migrant or you're someone who um, is local. 
definitely flips and obviously our perspective is very different and is placing certain values on that as a result. And I mean, it's interesting what you're saying about this because the procurement frameworks within which we operate in architecture are in some way setting up this outsourcing of responsibility on a regular basis. And it's a cruel twist on words, really, when you think about executive architects in this respect, in the kind of responsibilities that they're carrying for the deaths that are happening on site. And the fact that you can be absolved of responsibility because you literally draw a line in the contract and say, like, beyond this point, that's not on us. But Isabel, as you were saying, like, it comes into like, the concept, the ways that you're um, considering right from the outset about how you're designing make certain demands on the people on the ground. It's not literally a spreadsheet decision. Um, it has human consequences. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, um, you know, the human consequences, the human cost of, of these projects. Um, and I mean, we very much seek to engage companies however we can um, to kind of come around to this realisation that they do have responsibilities. Um, I think for us... Um, in the kind of business and human rights field, we sort of talk about different sectors as being less far or, or further along their business and human rights so-called journey than other sectors. So I think everyone probably in this room knows about the kind of horrific working conditions in the apparel sector, um, the sweatshops in South Asia, um, the kind of poor wages, um, sexual harassment that happens in those factories and the apparel sectors, um, if they've not sort of necessarily taken as significant kind of meaningful steps, they certainly know how to address those accusations. They know the language, they know how they, uh, what the, what's the sort of expected um, of them. And other sectors, I think construction, maybe not uh, as far along as, as apparel, um, but it's, it's less about this kind of, um, you know, the main contractors on these projects and the main names that are associated and the sort of subcontractors and the smaller names. Um, and so we kind of try to stress in our conversations directly with companies the, the reputational value, not, not necessarily the reputational risk of, engage, of kind of engaging with a, a company or in a context or on a project that's been associated with abuse, but actually the reward that comes with confronting an issue um, being transparent about the problems that you think might be associated with that project, um, what you can do within, you know, the, the kind of capacity of your um, own, if it's an architecture practice or whatever it might be, um, to confront that sort of head on. And that uh, flips. So instead of shying away from this responsibility, because actually you don't want, you know, we don't want to be associated with negative press, but actually we're going to approach this kind of full on, um, be as transparent as possible, um, be as honest as possible about what's happening, actually speak to workers. You know, that line, as you say, in a contract, I think companies often think, well, there's a line on the project, you know, I can't have engagement with um, actual people. How would I sort of know? Well, definitely you, you could speak more to workers who are actually on these projects themselves. Um, I think that kind of being proactive and admitting there's a problem in the problem and then seeking to address that, um, that could be incredibly powerful and it flips that sort of negative press on its head um, by sort of confronting the, the problem head on. I add something to this, <clears throat> just to go back for a second. We're talking about, well, we, many of us have mentioned sort of death 
as the, the thing that's happening, the thing that we're wondering whether we have responsibility for and how to be accountable for that. But uh, Izzy, you mentioned, you know, there's all sorts of other violences that are happening. Um, and I, I think generally speaking, oftentimes when we're thinking about violence, we focus on lethal violence. And you think about, for example, you know, what makes a dangerous city? What the indicator that you're looking at is homicides. Uh, when you're thinking about war crimes, the, you know, you're looking at genocide and genocide is the number of people who've died. It, it's always about the body counts. But honestly, death is not the thing that affects, like, when you're in a violent situation, the majority of people who are affected by violence are not being killed. There's so many other things that are happening. And it, it's often much more, uh, well, I think one of the reasons that we focus more on death is because it's much easier to measure have a dead body or you, you don't have a dead body. Um, but there's a lot more going on and those things are often much harder to measure. People are often much less open about them. They may not be, like if, if these things aren't criminal, then it's almost impossible to deal with them. Um, like you have no framework. So for example, I think marital rape wasn't illegal in this country until around 1990. So if somebody is raped by a spouse, that, I mean, that doesn't even exist. What do you, what do, you do in that? You have no recourse, nothing. Um, so unless something is a crime, there's no way of doing anything about it. So if the legal framework isn't the same, for example, as it is in this country, if you're you know, a foreign worker, an economic migrant, whatever, um, it's very difficult to deal with those questions. But in any case, I, I think uh, it's important to broaden the discussion about the violences that people experience to be plural, to be more than death, um, to think about the, the much broader issue of non-lethal violence that people experience. Yeah, exactly. So it's not just the language we use, but also engaging with the language of the spreadsheet. If it fits in the spreadsheet, we can actually do something about it. But, I mean, this is a point where I'd like to, like, maybe throw this back to some of the ethical practitioners in... He's trying to get a microphone. <laughs> Subtly. Um, uh, that you said earlier that you, you count yourself as an ethical practitioner. Okay, so coming back to the fashion and apparel industry, who's adjusted their like shopping habits as a result of some of these stories that have come out about like sweatshops and importation, things like this? Some. Yeah, a bit. Who's still buying from Amazon? <laughs> well, um, but who has felt able to raise something like this in practice? Is there anyone who's actually been able to say like something needs to be adjusted or something you felt? I'm not going to ask for like, details if you don't want to talk about it, but is there something that you've seen that you felt needed to change? Or are you working in this kind of utopia where actually everything is ethical? <laughs> Can't resist. Um, it's hard, I think, to understand the actual agency of architects when you're up against structural issues that Ariana and Isabel have talked about. But at the architecture side of things, at the coalface, so to speak, when you're actually up against it with projects where um, you see evidence of massive failings in public health or building regulations and so on, you want to draw attention to that, you want to do something about it. And um, I wouldn't say we were activists 
in that regard. But I would like to talk to people who might be interested on being activists in that regard, because the things that you see as an architect that other architects and architectural practices do um, in respect to public health and um, building regulations that ultimately, um, um, although structured around not criminal behaviour, are irresponsible and quite often negligent. But the negligence seems to be overlooked by REBA, who want to protect architects at all costs. So, you know, there has to be some sort of, um, um, I don't know, accountability to, to REBA and ARB. And I'm not sure if anyone in the panel wants to mention that aspect of risk and... Is that you? That's really... Um, yeah, I think I agree with what you're saying. I think we... Um, so my practice in this cultural space is really interesting. So the cultural space I spoke about earlier is a, was a kind of very particular context with a very particular kind of set of circumstances. But in this um, cultural space, we spend a lot of time actually effectively being activists. Um, uh, and, you know, we would uh, made a AJ 100, 20, one of 25 destructive practices last year because of our kind of activism and the, uh, and the things we do. And the interesting thing is when we get into kind of um, quiet rooms with powerful people and tell them off. They're very well aware of it. I think you were talking about this before. They're, they're aware of the kind of context and the framework and what's wrong and the, the disparity between what they say and what is actually happening. Um, and I think I think about architecture as a, as a vocation. I think it's really important um, for us to project that in some ways and I think but I do think it's based on kind of personal accountability so really interestingly when you were talking about ethics and language for me um, I think we're quite an ethical practice but what I really want to be is a virtuous practice and that's a lot harder and I think there's a kind of we all have kind of per personal virtues and there's a line of beyond which we won't go so in practice if somebody says we would, we're saying earlier if you ask uh, many architects to, to build a better mousetrap, they will tell you how to build a really good mousetrap. They won't say, no, what do you mean? What do you, what do you mean you want to put people in something that's like a mousetrap? Um, they'll, they'll help you build a really good mousetrap. Um, but quite often that's from a um, position of ignorance because they don't understand the outcome of that because they, they, they don't experience what's at the end of it. And they don't often talk to people who do experience what's at the end of it. And if you can kind of create a space where people can have those conversations and people can be more aware of that, most people, there will still be some outliers, but most people would kind of get a better sense of what's beneficial about it. Um, what's, it it's a kind of win-win, you know, you, you better product, you make your um, kind of end users happier, it lasts for longer, it's, you know, there, there are all these kind of benefits to it. Um, but I think there is a lot of personal accountability involved. Yeah, and the series of values that we put forward to the client, are you can challenge those in a way. I mean, I mean you, you might have seen my face. Do you want to talk about yes, always, <laughs> at length? Um, because obviously Reba has a job to promote architects, and it's really hard to promote someone who looks like they're murky. Yes. And so to try and put a gloss on it and talk about how ethical we are and about how we're doing a force for good in the world, I mean, it's hard enough trying to up fees as it is, without saying, like, by the way, these are inherently compromised people who might challenge you in some way. But ARB surely has 
some leverage to be able to challenge what architects do and how we do it. So do you think maybe the, you know, is there a, an agency with ARB, with the overhaul that they're doing at the moment to be able to affect systemic change? There's a shaking head in the audience. <laughs> You just say who you are as well first. Just say hello. My name's Sarah Ackie-Bogan. Um, I happen to be an RIBA rep on council, which is why I was shaking my head. Because um, I, I kind of doubt the agency that um, organisations like Reba and ARB have. Um, so I was really kind of shaking my head in, in agreement with you. Um, I mean, I, th I think there is an effort to address these things, especially post Grenfell, there's a concerted effort, but, but I think it's difficult. And I think that, that actually, um, I think that in the construction industry, architecture is a relatively weak profession and in a relatively weak position. And I'm, I'm just not sure how much agency we as architects have. Um, yes, so sorry to be the kind of voice of doom in, in, in the room. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I would just like to add that a few months ago, 33 institutions in construction signed up to a joint plan on climate and biodiversity. But one of the actions that they've all committed to do is to introduce ethical requirements. So anyone who is an RBA member should email the RBA and say, thank you for signing this in June. What are you doing about it? Because they publicly signed up to it. I mean, if I, if I can respond, um, the, the one thing that uh, really takes really seriously is, is actually the, the opinions of its members um, and, and the membership fees that go along with that. So actually, there is strength in numbers, and if there were a concerted effort for members, then, um, you know, then change might be possible. But I think it has to come from, um, you know, it has to come from the masses, uh, and, and there needs to be a kind of concerted effort. You know, so we need a recruitment drive this evening. Yeah, that forms at the door on the way out. We need new members. <laughs> Good members, the right members. That's what you're after. Yeah, yeah I just wanted to go on about the agency thing again because um, I think that's the, the kind of point. It's like, what can architects do? David, you're talking about something that's maybe to do with language, and I'm thinking maybe the problem's not really that new. Maybe the problem. You know, could you say the same kind of thing happened in the years that Chicago was becoming a proper city with the meatpacking industry? And you have Upton Sinclair's book, kind of social. Powerfully, were done. He wasn't an architect, he was a sociologist, but you know, he, the way he, he, he writes and the way he talks and the way he uses language, is, is it something you think that architects can contribute with or part of some sort of collective with people who are more powerful and have the agency to deal with those things? Yeah, I think there is a, there is a kind of, there's an art to kind of lobbying and um, getting people, getting politicians to see um, solutions to a problem as irresistible. But the way that the system works in this space, in my experience, is through cataclysm. So the system only responds when there's been 
we're involved and something happens and then they forget about it again then the next disaster and then something happens and that's that's basically how the system works but that's because there's a kind of broader system in my experience that is um, for, um, kind of a bit more it's the way things are done and I actually think there are I would argue that there are people who do care and have that agency and accountability that would do something about it and there are people who don't and almost should we waste our time trying to convince people that aren't interested to be interested um i think somebody's described how architects can is a you know those are that's a kind of group of people who are interested trying to do something and i think there are lots of groups like that i'm, I'm going I'm to throw out a quote there a cheesy quote but it's a really good quote by alice walker that the, the, the way that people um, uh, most give up their easy, easy, easiest way that people give up their power is by believing they don't have any. And I think we do have, we always have power. We always have kind of ways around things. All our, you know, architects are imaginative. They can be, you know, they can be really energetic and imagine. Um, we got to think about better ways to hack the problems that are in front of us and probably not just repeat the same things. And that's a that's a mistake we fall into trying to kind of make everybody see things the way that we see them and, and they fundamentally don't always but we have an incredible skill set of being able to sort of repackage and reframe projects in spatial terms or environmental terms to be able to convince whoever needs convincing whether it's a planner or a client or a contractor to be able to kind of get on board with what we ultimately kind of like hope they might do but i mean we were talking before about um the commercial interests and about how you know that could be used as a leverage for good you know like if you can convince someone that will save them money they're more likely to do it than if it's going to save a life potentially but izzy you were talking earlier about how um you know working with these these contexts a lot of the uh the conflicts arise from the fact that basically you're telling you're trying to convince someone that they need to make ethical changes which are going to cost them in capital terms and i was just wondering about like how you actually approach that argument because if we're talking about how like everyone in this room and on the live stream could go forward and actually affect some change like how might that actually be negotiated in real terms well i think i mean one thing um and i always say it first sort of get, get it out of the way because actually i think my standpoint is well there can be no compromise i'm talking about human lives however um <laughs> there has been um some studies done on um on conducting construction recruitment and employment okay much that costs in real terms and it's actually a very 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 small i think it's less than one percent of the project costs um that's one that i know of um in the gulf happy to share a link to that afterwards but actually it, i think it's less about that and more about thinking well at the moment, one of the um, actors I don't think we've spoken about at all has been investors and the financing of these big projects. Um, and I can tell you that investors are sitting up and asking questions um, around human rights records, labor rights standards on projects. Um, I had a conversation just today with a major pension um, company. Um, and they were really appalled at the um, results we had done. It wasn't actually a construction companies, it was uh, hotel companies, hotels are the other um, sector we have a focus on. Really appalled at um, our findings and also the, the kind of disclosure we had had from these, and they are multinationals, the biggest hotel 
um, companies in the world they'll be hosting fans at the World Cup next year. Um, you know, that um, pensions organisation has its own internal kind of screening um, for which companies it wants to include in its portfolios. Um, it's beholden to um, its... Uh, it's it's um, you know been beholden to its own um, to other stakeholders, and absolutely human rights standards are are of interest to it. And so investors um, are a huge kind of stakeholder that we haven't really touched on this evening. But I think in terms of thinking of the worth of engaging on these issues, um, it would be a huge mistake for companies to think that this doesn't matter um, because there isn't a legal obligation. Um, or because, you know, particular abuses in a particular industry haven't yet caught the kind of imagination or consciousness of the general public. Um, I think it does take, as you say, like one cataclysm, very large event um, to to capture um, everyone's attention. Um, And I think our our general message would just always be, do not wait for that to happen to you, um, because we do see that, and um, it's a huge huge danger to, to companies. Um, I should point out that we're taking com- questions via the chat in Vimeo as well and via Twitter when Rob's looking at his phone, um, which is not at the moment, so there aren't any questions. But if you have any that you want to throw on the floor, Rob will be your dog's body. Um, <laughs> but it is... Do you want to say something? Can I ask a question? <laughs> yes. Is that right? Um, no, I just... I don't know if we've sort of covered this already, but... Um, I was wondering if the panel or maybe the audience were wondering, do you think it's shameful that footballers, like, you know, you know, we think about Marcus Rashford, but there are also football clubs who are talking about boycotting um, World Cups and because of the death of migrant workers. Do we think it's shameful that n- nothing is coming from the architectural community and, you know, not just about Qatar, but about other projects where they never, no one ever holds their hands up and says, I can't believe I was involved in this project. It's, it dis, I disown me. Take me. Take my name off this stadium, this airport, you know, whatever, um, whatever project it is, because they just sort of say, we are very sorry about the deaths that have happened. We didn't know about it. And then they go to the opening party and they cut the ribbon and, that's, and nothing happens. And you just think, you know, where is the shame? That's, I mean, that's why I was, you know, Hugh came up with this event, but I was, I was, it really struck a chord with me and it just, I, I would like to see more architects stand up and say, you know, not good enough. Absolutely. I mean, is there anyone in the room who disagrees with that statement? <laughs> or what message do you think, what message would you like to send out to the world, to Reba, to ARB, to whoever is holding us to ethical account from your experiences and your thoughts here this evening? I'm asking whilst everyone's eating, obviously, so this is really bad timing. Should I, should I chip in there? I, I think it's difficult because it's especially antithetical to all of the things that... So the RIBA in, in this context will project a certain kind of enlightenment, but actually they're very invested in um, supporting business opportunities for UK architects abroad. So then, th- you know, it's, the incentive is a kind of perverse one they're never going to do that and the architects who are you're you for me it feels like you're effectively asking architects who are shameless about that to feel shame and you know 
it's kind of a paradox. They, they can never do that. I think there's a there's a different set of conversations that other architects can have that can illuminate the broader thing. And I think that that's actually about the insularity of the British architectural profession because the, all the liberal architects don't actually engage abroad very often in, in my experience. And I think if oh, another way around the problem is for more liberal architects to go out there and spread the gospel and interact with people and demonstrate. Um, and this is kind of part of my experience in Saudi Arabia. I was able to just by being there demonstrating most of my colleagues were, you know, white British men of a certain age. And I went out there and they like, I had people never seen anyone like me. And that, you know, all I had to do was talk and people would almost fall over. And it was, but then I was able to have conversations with people. I was able to kind of demonstrate there's a different way of looking at the world. And lots of people bought into that. Lots of people found that really interesting and it allowed them to reflect on their lives and their positions and things. Um, and just that, you know, these are people who just had to get up every morning and go to work like we do here. But they, 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 there's a kind of very specific set of circumstances, a specific way of looking at the world that they understand. So we that's the power of what I would say London culture in particular, but generally a kind of Britishness that can go out there and just be enlightened and be open and be liberal. Um, people see it and respond to it really well. So you're engaged with that complexity. Yeah, I think it's, you know, you, you understand people, um, you meet people on a, on a level, as a, you know, as a one-to-one, -one. they get to see you, you're not so different from them, and they can start to visualise a kind of different way of seeing the world. Mm. I mean, it's, I always say, oh, it's interesting, it's interesting though, that um, you might have to engage with designing better mousetraps in order to do that. So you have a, a kind of micro-agency. I don't agree. I think there is, there's, you know, it's a big world, right? You can, if there's one thing we found out of the, you know, we've got the internet and you know there's every flavour of everything on the internet, but there's also a market for everything on the internet. It may not be a market that exists, but I, I would say there are lots of people in the world who also want a more ethical way of doing things, um, but they don't actually have access to us. So if I was, if I was being mischievous, which after I am with the RIPA, I would say what you need is an, as a rival organisation that is promoting ethical British architects to people who want to hire ethical British architects. Arriba. I would just uh, jump in there. I think that's exactly it. Like this idea that the market doesn't exist yet. Make the market. Make the market. Make the rules. Don't have these 33, I don't, um, you know, 33 principles this lady mentioned about uh, climate change commitment. Don't just have principles, but have concrete actions, concrete uh, spelled out expectations of your business partners and create that market. As you say, it is a huge world. And the uh, sort of idea that everyone has to be bound by the business models that already exist, there are other people out there who think likewise. And I think that's something that's quite um, sort of underestimated the impact of is asking these questions publicly and saying, well, I ask these questions of, um, you know, about this project, how it would be uh, undertaken of the developer, and they didn't meet our expectations. And saying that publicly, um, that can be incredibly powerful. Sorry, Ariana. I just want to offer a counterpoint. Always pouring cold water and all the things. Um, in So I, like, I find all of this conversation really kind of 
empowering and it makes me want to go out and like do stuff. And that's nice. I like feeling that way. But then in my actual experience, so last year before the pandemic, I went back to San Salvador to direct a, a team of people to rewrite the city's public space policy. And, you know, we were hired by the municipal planning authority. And the project was kind of a disaster for various systemic reasons um, that I can get into that I have a note about that. But um, my team and I were advocating for certain things that the, the planning authority found so alienating and so not possible for them that it fractured our relationship with them. And it, it made it really difficult for us to get stuff done. So kind of asking these questions, putting people on the spot, we were advocating in, in some ways for some really kind of whole scale changes in the way that they did things. And they, they just freaked out. Um, and yeah, our, our relationship with them kind of soured. And so I, I, I came back from that experience at the beginning of the first lockdown. And uh, I, I didn't know how to navigate that. You know, should we have pushed for something that we knew wasn't good enough? Because then maybe we would have been able to retain that relationship and make some progress. But we all knew that that progress was not nearly sufficient, that it literally would have caused people to continue to die, talking about, you know, after my comment about how we need to stop thinking about death so much. Um, but it, it, it felt totally inadequate to my colleagues and me. And we weren't really willing to advocate for a half measure. But then we, we couldn't, the, everything fell apart when we, off, when we advocated for more. So I, I'm interested in how any of you, any of you um, have managed that when you, you push something and everything just falls apart because it's, it's too much. How do you balance between this kind of need for transformational change, but the, the possibilities of, the greater possibilities potentially of working more incrementally? I mean, speaking when um, the RBA was adopting the UN Sustainability Goals, they kind of like mapped these out and thought, like, okay, well, we can do these ones and these ones, but we can't do things like we can't address poverty, we can't like gender equality. Like, really? In architecture? So there's things that are already excluded just to make it kind of like bite-sized and manageable in a way. And I think um, like. We keep coming back to Grenfell because I think it's impossible to talk about death, especially in the UK, without talking about Grenfell. And that one of the reasons that was brought up as part of the inquiry about like why deaths occurred in the first place is because the architect was so caught up with the environmental cred credentials of the cladding. It wasn't just the aesthetics, but it's the environmental credentials. And they were saying like climate emergency, like this is the thing I can I can think about without thinking about fire safety, without thinking about the inherent compromises of uh, being outsourcing refurbishment work and the compromises that are made along the line that people aren't taking responsibility for in terms of workmanship. So it seems like there's a lot to deal with, like you're saying. Like sometimes it feels overwhelming about how much we actually need to address. And in some ways it's easier to just go like, do you know, I'm, I can't deal with that. That's quite a lot. Which probably wasn't anything to do with your point, Hugh, that you were trying to make earlier on. But would you like us to come back to you now? Just to um, speak about overwhelming things, um, and this is uh, picking up on some of Ariana's um, interests, so this idea of violence and um, the way that um, 
let's say the way that cities might kind of kill people slowly or softly, um, I wonder <laughs> what what you think. Um, you know how how architects can respond to this because the research isn't very. Um, uh, well, I mean, you'll know more about this than I do, but the research isn't very kind of concrete. There's not enough investment into things like um, mental illness and how cities um, might perhaps trigger things like serious mental illness, psychosis, for example. But there is um, there's a researcher called Gamble-Wolski um, who has kind of cited a link between cities and things like increased psychosis. And... I just wonder um, how you think kind of we as architects can or should start to think about um, things like that as an issue and how we, you know, how, how this might manifest in, in what we do, which is design and creating spaces, public spaces. I, I think all of us will probably agree on this and probably have all the same instinct, but we'll see. I mean, I think it, you need to talk to the people who live in the place and you need to talk to them in ways that make sense. Um, like like what I said before that I, I found that I couldn't do my work just by talking to people. So what I ended up doing was using, um, I, don't, I don't know what to call them, visceral methods, sensory methods. So I did a lot of different sorts of, there, there's, there's something called Cuerpo Territorio, this feminist decolonial Latin American thing um, about body mapping. So I used variations on that method as a way of working with people and having kind of a, I mean, many of you who are built environment professionals and um, you understand that working with something tangible, something physical, something that you can sense somehow in your body changes the conversation that you can have. Um, so I think it's important to expand. So first to actually work with the people who live in the place to understand what it is they're dealing with and then to find out how it is that you need to elicit that information. Um, it's not enough oftentimes, especially in these like, you know, if you're working with migrant workers in the Gulf and people who are in like deep vulnerability, um, it's not enough to just ask them, you know, what do you need in your life? It, it's um, the conversation's probably not going to go very far. I slightly disagree with that. Okay. I, I, sl I slightly disagree because um, I think it's too easy to say, let's just talk to people. Um, I think with, say, a lot of the sick buildings, the sick estates, the, the estates that are causing social problems or mental health problems or so on. You know, I think there was the 1950s Wilson block across the country which you know had a huge effect on heart rate and heart disease and so on but there was other things about that and i and and i was involved in a survey on, on it when i was really really young about 18 19 and we were going around with a survey that was about sitting down and talking with people for about half an hour a lot of people didn't have the skills to talk or the willingness or the time, or the soberness to talk. Um, it was a nightmare. You had to really, really, really observe as well as talking. You needed, to, you needed people with an eye. You needed people with, to understand that a, a wall that's 40 millimeters thick is gonna cause social problems within a house. 
because you can hear someone speak in the other room without raising your voice. I think it's much, it's too easy just to see talk. I think you need to, as I think what the, the beginnings to be discussed here is almost a kind of, it sounds kind of um, um, hopeful and utopian again, almost a, a kind of a, 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 a super team of hackers that can just break down the system because there isn't the agency. You need to sort of bend the rules a little bit. Reba probably don't have that inherently within their structure, ARB, neither does um, I think that you've got to sort of, um, um, you know, do something more than just talk. Up, up, not down. Um, anyone I think I've been hit once on these things before. Um, yeah, something that comes up a lot in the talks actually is about the role about in the office, about the and with Rob down here a lot is about the role of the architects. You know, it's um, I just think we're just uh, the whole. You know, it goes from education onwards. I don't know. I mean, I haven't been around education for, since I was there, which is long enough. But um, w the definition of what we do is too preoccupied with design. You know, I, uh, you know, we often talk about having financial understanding about the way things work um you know and talking money you know i think you mentioned it a minute ago about a way of convincing somebody you can convince somebody through a financial argument easier than an ethical one maybe but it's that sort of broader idea that you maybe what we need is fewer designers and more to empower you know sort of create frameworks in which that can happen and, and you've got to step outside of being a designer really and go into other fields to make things happen. And, and I wonder whether we've all just, you know, from education onwards, we've pushed down a route of it's the, it's the 20th century, century model of what an architect is again. You know, it's the, it's the age old problem of the profession in many ways. For the 21st century, with all the things that we're facing, do we need a redefinition of the role of the architect? Um, in, in my experience, ever since I've wanted to be an architect from the age of 10, there's been a kind of continuous question about the redefinition of an architect is a kind of like never-ending rolling um, angst that um, architects go through it, quite rightly. But I think um, I, I come at that problem from a completely different end of the telescope, which is that part of the reason is what's implied by that 20th century definition of architect is that they look a very particular way and they come from a very narrow background that isn't wildly different than it was 100 years ago at the end of the First World War. Right. So actually what you often get on many of these estates is so and just to put a bit of context on this. So university education in this country expanded in 1992, which was what's that? I can't count, but 27 years ago, 29, well, what, somebody, yeah, anyway, maths. Yeah. University education expanded in 1992. So lots of people um, who wouldn't ordinarily before that have gone to university and study architecture, went to university and study architecture, and then they disappeared from the professions. What you got from that are lots of estates which are basically being, uh, lots of single estates which are being renewed on a cycle of about every 25 to 30 years because people with lived experience of being in those things don't get to contribute to conversations about how thick a wall is so you can hear somebody next door. And the person who's designing it designs it, you know, a one to two, you know, one to 2,000 from space doesn't understand that. And that's not to suggest that there's a kind of monopoly of virtue of only these people can design um, architecture of this. But the more people that can contribute to it, 
in a meaningful way, in a kind of empowered way as professionals and have those conversations. I think it also applies to the conversations about the Gulf. I actually think the, the more people that are involved in those conversations that are from those backgrounds and can articulate the kind of stresses and pressures that mean that they're in that in the first place in a, in a kind of straightforward way, and they are out there, um, there's plenty of them out there, um, those people can contribute to part of the solution as well. So it's not a kind of superimposed thing. And I think it's, it, we, we've just got a narrow set of people who get to talk about things, from my experience. You got a question from? We have a, we have a question from the internet. This is so exciting. This is our first, yeah, it's our first internet question. Um, does the panel, Oh my God, there's two questions. One just came in live. Does the panel have any exemplars of when an architect slash the profession has actually done something ethical over business as usual? <laughs> or, or I guess anyone, has anyone got any examples of architects being ethical? Uh, I'm trying to think of a specific example at the moment. I think that the, the power of is when you don't hear about it. It shouldn't be a thing where you're trying to get a pat on the head, right? You should, it should just what we do as compassionate, thinking, ethical human beings. It just should be what we do. It shouldn't be a kind of, you know, tick, tick box. So I think it's actually easier to point it out when it's wrong rather than when people are just decent, right? And you don't need to hear about it. It's just decency. So, uh, I, may, I may be wrong for this example, um, and Dave might correct me, um, but I don't know if you were in the country at the time, but um, I think that potentially one of the, uh, it, was, it was one of the architects who withdrew, or it may just have been other businesses, but it's certainly an example of businesses withdrawing from a situation which was considered well, unpalatable to say the least, in the wake of the uh, murder of Jamal Khashoggi in the Istanbul uh, embassy, certainly companies did withdraw their, you know, from their involvement in Saudi Arabia. That's one example. I mean, I think it sort of shows really actually um, two things. One, how uh, sort of tainted a business relationship has to get before businesses do withdraw and become, you know, dissociate themselves. I think the second thing, actually, what's more interesting question than, than you know, what, what's an example of a time when architects or any other business has decoupled from, from a project is actually what's an example of a time when a business has not stepped back and engaged publicly and been very transparent about confronting that problem. And it goes back to what we were saying earlier about what we'd like to see rather than just a, a boycott or a um, break of contract would be companies, architects saying, right, there's a room here. What is the problem? Who is being impacted? How can we help to remedy this problem? Not just cutting and running, um, you know, at the first sign of trouble. And I think that that is a much more constructive response. And it's certainly what we'd like to see from a business and human rights perspective, um, just to sort of come, come back to that as a kind of fundamental response of business when, when issues are flagged to them, um, instead of John Lewis, uh, you know, suddenly not sourcing from that marble 
quarry in India, or that's the one that always comes to mind, but there are many other examples of companies being confronted with behavior by a supplier or a recruitment agency or a labor supplier and instantly dropping it like, you know, hot coal. And actually that's completely the wrong approach. We would never advocate that. That's not constructive. It doesn't lead to remedy for workers or other impacted communities. And that to me would be a more pertinent question. So rather than engaging with erasure, you want someone to be explicit about the yeah. positive action that they're making instead. Yeah, because otherwise, you know, if it's the case that, I mean, for us, um, we are focused on like labor rights. So say, if, you know, it turns out that someone's not been paying their workers or a recruitment agency has been, pe has been charging huge fees to workers. They aren't going to stop that practice just because they've lost one client because there's been no kind of attempt to, to remedy the issue no kind of action plan, action plan put in place to kind of um, you know, put the steps in place to make sure it doesn't happen to another group of workers or to make sure that the workers who have already paid recruitment fees or not been paid uh, receive their money that's owed to them. Um, and that's, that's the problem with that kind of blanket approach. Um, oh, why do you think they don't do that at the moment? Why do you think it's easier for people to step away than be explicit and transparent I about think this? it's an easier message. I think it's an e easier sort of um, media message. If it, you know, it comes out in you know, a mainstream newspaper that John Lewis is sourcing this marble from this quarry, it takes a lot longer to explain, well, John Lewis is still sourcing the, the marble from the quarry, and that's a good thing because X, Y, Z. I, I actually think it's that. And I think it's also... Um, the you know the issue of no one wants to stick their head above the parapet, basically, and be the first to to take that approach. Yeah, exactly. Um, can you just take a question from the floor and then come back? Is that right? Um, yeah, I was just going back uh, back to that point. Who, um, who are you first? Uh, Chris Hopkinson. <laughs> Hi. Um, sort of on sort of post occupancy evaluations and talking with local residents. One of the first steps that. Uh, hopefully increasingly many architecture companies sort of take so then you can learn from mistakes and see what the actual users either like or dislike in their current place and they can dislike in in the place that you're building and then you can apply those into the next thing um so maybe that should be part of rrba uh, um and also going back to what david was saying maybe if architects within the seven years training took two or three months to work on construction sites and then you would get get that side of things which yeah most of us don't we i went site today for 40 minutes and that doesn't really cut it and what a perfect time to be asking questions about what architectural education should be given that it's only a week since arb launched their consultancy consultation about the uh, nature of architectural education about what it actually entails um and i mean it sounds like listening is an important thing that we possibly don't teach and that idea about being able to like read people understands like should that be part of architectural education as well? What other things are missing that we need to be able to raise? Sorry, uh, architects being given the time and like money, the funds to be able to do these things because you know if you're in a smaller practice, you can't afford a week doing post occupancy evaluations and logging all these and yeah. So again, that, there's that a financial issue. Investors, yeah. 
another slight problem with education in, in, in respect to some of these things we're talking about is that who, who's investing the universities and the construction industry and sponsoring and things like this because um, you're trained through architecture to follow sets of guidelines to make a building work. But sometimes a lot of those things that you're specifying and choosing and being educated to use are only there because of the people who manufacture them are funding the rules and the regulations that you're following. I mean, it's a very good point. I think David Cross at UAL has done a lot of in research into the kind of forensic accounting of how an, a university operates and therefore what stories get told and then get passed on to future generations as well which is absolutely fascinating if you think about you know like what we're sending out to the world is only the consequence of what is fed into the education system in the first place um, so we're going to be inherently compromised if the university system is entangled in that way hence all the strikes at the moment I mean there's some really interesting kind of labor questions going on in terms of education um, Ariana is do you want us to loop back to the point that you were going to make a minute ago? It might be a bit of a kind of like handbrake turn. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, so it was in response to the internet question, but it wasn't actually a response to that question. Oh, there's another one that's exciting. Um, <clears throat> but it wasn't actually a response to that question. It was more of a response to, to the conversation that's been happening uh, and a kind of complicating how to make decisions about things. So I have to tell a story that's not mine. So a friend of mine uh, is doing research in Colombia, in a Colombian city, and she's an economist. Um, she was working in a slum, and she was asking the people in the slum about their livelihood histories. So understanding you know, how they made a living over the course of their lives. And you know, it, it's a, a a community that's experiencing and has experienced for a long time a lot of difficulties. So you're getting a lot of hard stories. So eventually she kind of sits down with the community leader and the person says, you know, I had a, I had a small business, I had whatever it was, a laundry and it was fine. And then after a few years it folded. So I took on a couple hit jobs and then I made enough money to get through the rest of the year. And then I was able to open another thing but that failed after a while. So then I took on another couple assassination jobs, and like that was that was his livelihood history. Um, so what the hell do you do with that? Um, so yes, it, it's an untapped market for architects. Yes, I think <laughs> that solves the fees question pretty soon. Painters and decorators who who teach me about the economics of of grievous bodily harm and how much you get paid to take five years, ten years, or whatever. And it's almost like that, you know, it's like people are prepared to do that. I mean, it sounds like a very kind of mucky question to raise, but given that our Prime Minister has engaged in these kind of practices, it should be something we get to speak about a little bit more. Um, does our second question from the internet relate to uh, architectural fascination, or is it something completely different? It's, I think it's kind of back to something we've talked about, but maybe worth rounding back to. Um, could ethical architecture start with ethical practices if practices were more diversified and gave their employees the opportunity to share views and experiences we are we might be able to start a shift towards better ethics question yeah i mean 
It was interesting that earlier on when we were talking about whether you felt able to raise your voice, David, you said you could and CB does as well. But you're also in positions of power within your practices to a certain degree. I mean, is there, how do you challenge those kind of hierarchies? Switch it off. Which is, uh, yeah, anyway, um, for, from my point of view, it, it was actually relatively easy. And the reason it was easy was because of the contrast, because it was so kind of rare for somebody like me, I think, to be in those conversations in the first place. I could virtually say whatever I wanted initially. And I think, but, but it's kind of proven the point of the question that the, the more kind of rooms uh, so the more people are in the room that are allowed to contribute to that um the better it is for everyone in my experience i don't know if you no i would totally agree uh, and, uh, and i think with a small practice it's 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 just totally essential um because everyone can actually bring something to the discussion to the ideas i mean some of them are here so maybe you, you disagree completely <laughs> Uh... Well, I just wanted to add that actually, and what we're talking about business models, that's a, it's a point of differentiation because, you know, there are, I, I, I don't tire of telling people like there, are, there is no lack of architects that can do a planning application. So actually that's not what you're competing on. Um, so the, the more points of differentiation you've got that is something that is authentic to you, that you do differently to other people. How, how does that not help you find a market that is actually looking for you? I think it's, um, that's what we've found so far. It might not necessarily be that way all the time, but I think there is a kind of, um, there should be more of an, a, a kind of proof of concept of that sort of practice. Uh, and I think there are plenty of them out there and they're not new. They've always been there. There were, you know, there were kind of radical feminist um, uh, practices in the 80s, in the 70s. There, you know, there have been kind of radical practices all the way through which people still refer back to now and their output and their work, which people still refer back to now as kind of defining something. Um, and I just think we should have the spirit of that now. They won't, all, they won't all succeed, but I think that the spirit is there. And actually there's, there's always a surprising market for things that we don't, as you said, you need to make the market. That's what kind of lots of entrepreneurs do. I think it's an entrepreneurial skill actually. It does, oh, sorry. <clears throat> I wanted to add um, more of a, personal individual uh, lens to this. Uh, so when I go to a place like San Salvador, or I, when I get hired to, by somebody there, it's kind of a boon, the fact that I'm from the US, that I study here. It, it makes me seem more credible. But then here sometimes when I talk to people about where I've worked, that people are like, oh, that's really interesting. But is that relevant to our reality here? There, there's this constant sense of this sort of exceptionalism of places in the global south, um, the sense that there's nothing to aspire to, nothing to learn from, and the sense of this like universal aspirationalism of a place like London. Um, and that, that's, um, that's a problem. That's something when we're talking about challenging hierarchies, we need to deal with that. Um, when I was doing the planning work last year, I was on a team with, it was me and two Salvadorans, we were in a meeting at some point with another team of people doing another public policy from Barcelona. And I had the very unsettling, weird experience of sort of being treated for the first time as a local researcher, a local planner. And they treated us like garbage. 
Um, they viewed us as having, even though literally we're like my colleagues are talking about the city that they grew up in. And we were completely dismissed in many ways, uh, to the point that my colleague at some point was like, oh, well, you know, Ariana is from the US and she studies in the UK and she's, she's here working with it. Like it, it made me feel terrible. And I'd never had that experience before of being talked down to. I'd always been on the positive end of things. I'd always been, um, you know, receiving respect and uh, people assuming that I had something worthwhile to say. Um, and then suddenly, it, you know, I'd, it was just not that, even in the city where we're from with other people who were visiting that city, uh, they just treated us terribly. Um, so when we're talking about challenging things, it, it's much, there's more systemic issues. It, it, I mean, I want to work with your practice and I want to work with your practice because it sounds killer um, to be able to do that. Not with literally. Things. Yeah, not, no. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, so I, like yeah. to be able to work in a, yeah, a place like that cool. sounds amazing. But there, there are these much larger kind of systemic issues that we're, we're up against that we need to think about as we're working. I mean, we're, we're talking about like voices in the room and obviously like we're in a kind of in privileged position here tonight because we get to continue some of these conversations over Warner Gronies and things like this. So like, but I was just wondering, um, for the benefit of those who are joining from outside the room and also just as a kind of like way of kind of trying to consolidate some of these conversations that we've been having this evening, one, the theme that's cropped up from the London Festival of Architecture this year, they've got like a one word theme they have all the time. And this year it's act. And I think the interesting thing that we started talking about this evening is about like how you might think you practice ethically, but do you practice ethically? And how can we move from this kind of performative ethical practice into something which is a kind of distinct action? Um, and there have been some thoughts that we've had this evening, but like I was just wondering if I could pick on each of you to kind of give like one concrete action that you might send people out into the world with about how to bring that positive change to the profession. Um, and to the construction industry as a whole. It's like, where does the limit of architecture lie? And also, if there are other contributions that people want to take from the floor, we are open to that too. So, David, should I pass to you first? I think we, we've got a kind of pithy phrase that we use, and we've kind of used it in, a, in competitions. So we've, we've kind of demonstrated in competition. It's just, it's just, just be just. And because I, I think that the, the root of that is that people often think in their own silos, even people that, that as Rob's pointed out, are shameless, think about their own, they think about their own kind of sense of justice and, and fairness from their point of view. And they will, they will sit you down and tell you, we're being very fair. We're doing that, you know, you, you're asking too much of us. We're already being fair. Um, and I think it's just everybody trying to be as just or more just than they can be. And that, that's fundamentally for me, it's about kind of, decency, compassion, and just kind of people being um, better. Uh, this sounds trite, maybe, but I think accountability for our, our own practice and the, the harms that we cause in our own practice. So my own, uh, an example that's coming to mind, I did a workshop with a group of young men in San Salvador in a skate park in a rough area of the city. And I asked them to draw a picture of a place or a time that they safe, at ease, comfortable, something positive. And then another picture of a place or a time where they felt, you know, uncomfortable, nervous, something negative, whatever it might be. I had a big stack of papers, lots of markers, and everybody got to work. 
And uh, there was one guy who picked up a piece of paper, uncapped his marker, and wrote my insecurity on the top. And then he wrote on the street, uh, in, in my house, uh, the fucking police. He was just like a, ca a collection of words. He did it really quickly, put the paper aside. And then he took another blank piece of paper, ready to do his positive thing, opened his marker again, and froze. So I, you know, I, I, I live with my partner's family. When I'm in San Salvador, I have a food full of, you know, a fridge full of mangoes every day if I want it. It's like, a, you know, an easy place to live. Um, so, and I, when I did this exercise myself, I've had trouble doing it, thinking of a place that I actually felt safe in the city. Uh, so I knew that it was a difficult exercise. Um, but I realized that this guy was, because of my prompt, realizing that he had no place or time in his life that he ever felt safe. And that, you know, that, that was my responsibility. Um, so when we talk about, you know, do no harm, um, all these things around benefit, not harm, I, you know, it's important, but it, it's much, it, it's more complicated than that. And um, we will inevitably do harm in our work and we need to figure out, you know, what it looks like, what we can do about it um, and what our accountability is to, you know, this guy for, um, first, then to the people around him who saw this happen. Um, than to myself in terms of my own research practice, my own practice of ethics in my work, and then how I take that forward, how I talk about it, um, how I use that in my work, whether I brush it aside, pretend that I didn't make that mistake, or whether I try to own it. Uh, I don't think I have uh, an anecdote, but I think maybe my sort of answer to that would tie, tie Ariane and David's sort of neatly ish together which would just be if you you know want to make yourself accountable um you know as ariana says i think you have to uh, and you want to practice ethically it would be asking the right questions and asking them publicly and not being afraid to say that you've asked them these are the answers and this is this is how you know you're responding to them because i think until there's some kind of transparency in how um, people are kind of grappling with these really difficult questions. Um, people will sit back and head below the parapet um, quite a bit, and I think that that can go quite a long way and be very impactful um, to in turn improve that transparency. I think that's a good point to round up on here because I think the more we do get to talk about these things the more opportunity there is to affect some kind of positive change um, so thank you for being part of this open debate this evening um, I hope you do go forth into the world and acknowledge your mistakes talk about them um, we are all flawed human beings even if we are architects um, and that these are things which we need to raise, as you said, like how do you raise these voices within the institutions to be able to affect that later on, whether that is ARB, REBA or universities. Um, so thank you very much to Rob for orchestrating all of this. Do you hand over to you to? Yeah, no, you? I was just going to say on We've behalf of us. Yeah, I have got a mic, um, finally. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd also say thank you to Isabel, Ariana, David and yourself, Ruth, for sharing a really interesting chat and also a big thank you to everybody coming out and braving a live event for the uh, what well, must be one of the first times in a long time
Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. <laughs>